Malikcha, how are you going? Yeah, going good. Just enjoying the holidays. Yeah, Ramadan. It's going yeah. pretty well. This Easter Center is quite nice, actually. It's very nice. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah. The rumorin is it's quite amazing. But sitting in front of us is someone who is extremely inspirational, someone who is our personal mentor, someone we've wanted on the show for quite a while now. It is my honor and it is my privilege to introduce to the show Mr. David Purcell. Sir, welcome to your show. Thank you for having me. So what have you been up to during this holy month of Ramadan? Been enjoying the season, been enjoying the fasting, the spiritual reflections, and I think most importantly, spending time reading the Quran on a regular, regular basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've enjoyed that very much. Yeah, I think that's something different about Ramadan that always sits, which is just like reading the Quran more. Yeah, mashallah. So you have obviously been teaching public speaking for quite some time now. You taught us public speaking. You taught us the art of being a good conversationalist. How important is public speaking in today's day and age? I think it's critical because, let's be honest, in the modern age, the art of conversation is decreasing. That's very true. Many, many young people, you can see anywhere you go, instead of talking, they're on their phones. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not talking on the phones. They're playing on their phones or they're researching or they're sending messages. The art of conversation is an important part of who we are as individuals. And it defines our personality and it gives us the opportunity of expressing views. And more importantly, listening and sharing views with other people. In terms of public speaking, that's another, a whole other dimension. But the, the art of conversation leads to public speaking. It, it actually disappoints me when I see students, particularly students, standing at bus stops and train stations, not talking to themselves or to other students. They're just on their phones. And I think that's an incredibly sad picture to see. And I say that with great respect because people can make their own decisions. But the important thing is... To get to know people, to get to understand what their views are about life, to share things that are going on in the world, you can do so much with social media. But the art of conversation, you can really engage with people and have a conversation and understand their views as well as expressing yours. So it's critical. Absolutely critical. Just going back to the part where you were talking about social media a lot of people are expressing their views through platforms such as twitter and um i guess instagram snapchat or that people are basically hiding behind their phones and not really trying to sh- showing their true face whilst like talking about important topical matters how important do you think it is that we go back up on the stage we start talking to people we start inspiring exploring and achieving once again I think it is critically important and I think educational facilities right across the world need to take notice of this. I think the art of communication, and if you think about it, even today, let's call it today's youth, still at high school or university, before too much longer, today's youth will become today's parents. And today's parents have responsibility and a need to teach their students and their their children 
about conversation, about public speaking and the need for it. And maybe I sound like I'm old-fashioned, but I, I'm concerned that the art of conversation and public speaking is declining. And people are now doing exactly what you said. They're hiding behind social media and thinking, I can express myself in social media by tapping some keys or picking up some characters on, on, a, on a phone or a computer without actually putting words together and expressing a view that is logical, easily understood, and sensible. Yeah, I'm on the same page as you, David. Um, I feel like in the modern day and age, even if you, like let's say if you're on a call with somebody, even though you're talking, you're not visually seeing the person. And what I've learned through your lessons as well is that with public speaking and speaking to the people, as much as as much as your voice is important and how you portray your voice, it's also your um, how you look as well and your body language that's also really important. And I feel like when everyone they're just at home and you know in calls with other people, even though you can hear them, you can't see them, and that is very bad and very detrimental to improving our body language when we're talking with other people. Well, it's interesting you should mention that because. Just a, maybe a bizarre example is the FBI in the United States. 30% of their interview information is gained by what they hear. The other 70% is gained by what they observe. Mm -hmm. And if you're sitting in front of a keyboard talking to someone 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 20,000 kilometres away, you cannot see anything. The art of speaking involves verbal and non-verbal communication. Yep. Critically important. What would you say, you've been obviously in some very high positions that require good public speaking skills. You were the former CEO of Toyota in Papua New Guinea, am I right? Correct. And then you were also the former CEO of GM Motors. These are positions that require the art of speaking not just to your colleagues but also to the community through advertisement and as the CEO what would you say is from a business perspective is the importance of public speaking well if you're looking at a CEO's role the CEO's chief executive officer's role in any company is the face of that company Yes, it's advertising as well, but the face of the company, the CEO leads the company and becomes the visionary, becomes the person responsible for the whole operation of the company. Now, you can't achieve that unless you can communicate effectively. And the communication has to be consistent. It can't just be, I'm going to say something today and not say anything for the next three days. Leadership and consistency of message is critical. When you think about any active CEO in any company in the world, they have to be consistent, they have to be on vision, they have to be on message, because if the CEO says the wrong thing, it can cost the company millions of dollars, be it through the stock exchange, be it through stocks and shares, or just the way the message is interpreted by the market. So communication skills is critical in how the CEO fulfills the role and delivers on the company's key performance indicators, which yeah. leads to shareholder involvement, 
dividends and all the other bits and pieces that are associated with the CEO's role. And also, we were talking about how communication um, is important for a business, um, for the community, for looking like outside and their relation with the outside world. But how would you say, like, how would you describe the importance of communication inside the business with the co-workers and the CEO? <laughs> Thank you for the question. The communication internally is something that the employees expect from the CEO. They expect it to be inclusive, not exclusive, which means that everybody in the company needs to feel connected to the CEO. The CEO needs to encompass the message which is in the mission and vision of the company. And this has to be done consistently. It can't be done ad hoc or when the circumstances prevail. It has to be seen to be the, the core values of what the company stands for. So the communication internally has to be consistent in line with the mission and vision of the company, the mission statement if you like, but more importantly it has to be fair and include everybody from the lowest ranking employee right through all departments including all gender all departments all aspects of the company communication has to be part of the management technique you just mentioned vision as a leader vision is obviously one of the most important things you can't lead a group of people without having a strong vision that has good fundamentals how would a leader develop vision? Well, it's a, it's a lengthy process in, in some respects, but then in others, other respects, it's very simple. Every CEO has a list of key performance indicators or business outcomes that must be delivered. Now, sometimes they're not delivered, but as a starting point, they must be delivered. Circumstances can prevail, like financial crisis or, or acts of God or what they call force majeure, which are things that no one can account for. But the key performance indicators need to be positioned in the state of mind of the, of the employees and the market as something that benefits them. So in order to create the vision, the key performance indicators should underpin the vision. The vision needs to be a statement of where the company is going and why. And people will believe that when they see a reason to believe it and it's a benefit to them. For example, in the automotive industry, if there is a new vehicle being released, the market wants to know, how does that vehicle suit my needs? Does it suit my budget? Does it suit my family circumstances or my business? If it's a change in company structure, the employees internally need to know is this going to make my employment more secure? Is this going to give me more opportunities for advancement? Or is this going to give me more security for the rest of my working life? So the, the key answer to the question you just asked is, the vision has to be driven by the business outcomes, but linked to benefits to the customer or the employees, so people accept it, buy in it, and believe in it. It cannot just be words. And how important is public speaking in that sense, like that you have to, like what you just mentioned, like good 
like if you're going to make change you're obviously going to need good public speaking and communication skills how is that important in what you just said well it's interesting because the the business in Papua New Guinea is an example I think it had around about 1100 employees through 16 different locations across the country each one of those locations was an independent business with several different departments in each company. The communication skills required has to be able to be matched to the person you're speaking to at the time. So if you're speaking to, say, a financial accountant, they don't understand many times the fundamentals of marketing or advertising. Or if you're talking to a trainee motor mechanic, they don't understand business principles. So the important part is is to match the communication to the people that you're speaking to at the time. Now that's a skill and it's also a requirement of any CEO's position because you have to be able to match your message to the audience. If you don't match it, you can be talking things that the, the audience do not understand. And what happens when that occurs? the audience disconnects. So you have to match and adapt your style to the circumstances and the audience in order for the vision to be understood or to create the change that you want to make. As a leader, it is important to maintain connections with role models and mentors. Regardless of a leader's success, these are the individuals that teach you and you should go to them when you need advice. So who do you look up to for inspiration and mentorship? I'd like to break that into two categories. Firstly, inspiration. I love innovators. Innovators in anything, they attract me. Jeff Bezos from Amazon. He has redefined global logistics. Started working in his parents' garage selling books online. He's now worth, I think, $18 billion and earns $205 million every day. He's an innovator. He inspires me. Not because necessarily he's a nice person. That's not what the question is about. It's inspiring me every time I look at what Bezos is doing. I see innovation. I see new approaches to existing businesses and challenging the norm. I find Bezos and inspiration. Now in the past, there's people that I go back to and some of your listeners may not even know these people. The late Kerry Packer from Australian Consolidated Press. He passed away some years ago. He was an innovator in his own way. He was direct, abrupt, sometimes insulting the way he dealt with people. What I admired about him was his business determination and that's another category that I, I find interesting to observe people that are focused on achieving business outcomes for a variety of reasons are people that motivate me and inspire me in a domestic sense I look at people that are close to me in my family circle now this might sound really strange I've got a, a brother that's 82 years of age he lives in a cattle property in central Queensland. He has one of the most common sense voices of reason I've ever seen in anybody. At any point in time, you can pick the phone up and talk to him. 
about world events and he has an opinion on it. And his opinion is absolutely basic and concise. I find people like that great mentors because they take a lot of the fluff and bubble, as I describe it, out of the message and just talk the facts. Another one of my good mentors is a former corporate services manager from Queensland Railway. Quite a very, quite an important role. He's now since retired, but he was a great mentor because not only was he a good friend of mine, but he had a law degree, an economics degree, an engineering degree. Wow. And he was a person that I'd known for many, many years. What I found with him, which was so refreshing, was he was a calm person that would listen to both sides of any debate. And he would give both sides of any debate credibility and kudos. And then he would offer what I always saw as a voice of reason to explain anything. Those are the people that have inspired me in my life. I also had that great motivation and inspiration from reading certified autobiographies because they're real life messages on people's lives and the challenges they met. And I'd encourage anybody else to do the same thing. <coughs> Pardon me. It's all good. What would you say your favorite autobiography is? Very simple. It's Jack Welch winning. Can you tell us a bit about it and why you love it so much? Jack Welch was a person that started in a very, very basic role in his life. Sadly, he's passed away now too. But looking at him, he became a CEO of the General Electric Corporation in the United States. And the autobiography that is, I think, one of the best sellers, and it, to me it's a fundamental best read, it talked about what you look for in good people that work for you. And conversely, what to look for the people that are not a good fit in an organisation and what you need to do about it. He talked about how to get the best out of people. Then he talked about how to get the best out of business opportunities and not be afraid to take risks and not be afraid to fail. A lot of people get absolutely terrified about failing. There's nothing wrong with failing as long as you don't make the same mistakes twice. Some of the great innovations in the world are a direct result of continuous failing year after year after year. But when they succeed, the world never forgets. Jack Welsh winning is a fantastic read. If you want inspiration on sporting things, there's a great book called The Wooden Ways. Wooden was a... a He's also passed away, sadly. He just didn't quite get to 100 years of age. He was a high school, college basketball coach in the United States. His views on team building, I think, are second to none. So they're just some of the, the publications that I've read in my life that I've built my business career around and I still find value in today. Because they don't age. These things are still real. I feel like um, when you said that it's important to learn from your mistakes, if I can add to that, it's also important to learn from others' <coughs> mistakes as well. And I think you can, you can learn from others' mistakes by reading the autobiography of um, famous people that have made mistakes to get to where they are now. 
and have learned from their mistakes and you can also learn from their mistakes as well. Yeah, quite true. There's no copyright on learning. You can learn from anybody at any time. I've learned some amazing lessons from people in small villages in Indonesia about a simplistic approach to life and I, I just value those lessons because they're so unique and they come from the heart. What are some of the lessons you learnt and why would you say they're important to the art of leadership or public speaking, whatever it may be? Because they come from the heart, they're real. There's no hidden agenda. If you're talking to a fisherman in a, vi in a village somewhere on the, on, the, on the coast of Java and you go and talk to them about life, they have simple needs. And the simple needs are family, enough food to eat for that day, religious faith to follow and the culture within the village that everybody helps everybody else. Now there's no hidden agenda when these people share these messages with you but if you take those messages and lessons and then transfer them to a business life or to a student's life or to family life how incredibly powerful are they? Because it doesn't matter where the good message comes from as long as it's a good message. It's inspiring. Yes it is. It is. Being in a leadership position can create the feeling of, invin of invincibility since you're always telling others what to do. But it helps to check in with others to improve upon things you are not aware of. More qualities are lacking among leaders today. Well, I think the one word that sums this up to me is lack of consistency. Now, consistency is a word that's thrown around. It's not generally as understood as well as it should be. Consistency has to be that people become to rely on you to be consistently fair, to be consistently positive, to be consistently on mark, to be consistently in touch with what's going on. So the common thing that I see lacking in leaders today is the lack of consistency. And it's closely followed by another I think an important skill, which is, if you look at and study history, you'll see a syndrome called the Caesar syndrome. Now, the Caesar syndrome is, is a common term for people, and you described it before, people that feel, because they're the leader or the, the CEO of the business, that they're invincible, that everything they say must be right. I've seen this in, in businesses, I've seen this in people, and it fails every time. Why does it fail? Because if people are not seeking the opinions of others, human nature being what it is, nobody will challenge that leader. No one will offer opinions to that leader because they believe the leader will not listen. Effective leaders are the ones that engage people, seek opinions, encourage opinions, encourage people to challenge and ask questions. So the key point that I wanted to make here is consistency of message and avoiding the Caesar syndrome. Now Caesar believed that he was unable to be conquered by anybody in his whole lifetime. If you study the history of Caesar, he did eventually become conquered, like everybody does when they follow that particular role. The Caesar syndrome is something that is common in business. 
consulting psychologists will be quick to support what I've just said. I remember I supported a person once to go higher and higher in the organisation. And this person developed a Caesar syndrome and he failed. And he asked me, why did I fail? I said, I think you know the answer to the question, but if you want me to give it to you, I will. He said, yes, please do that. I said, did you look in the mirror? Did you understand what the Caesar syndrome was? And did you engage with your people? He said, no. I said, well, that's why people stopped engaging with you. No leader can be a leader in isolation. The leader has to lead through people. They have to get things done through people. About the Caesar syndrome and what you mentioned before, how does that tie into effective communication? Communication, by definition, is two-way. If you're not listening, you're just talking. And if you're talking without asking for opinions or validating what you're saying, you have no way of understanding whether the message is firstly being understood or heard, and secondly, whether it's been respected. Most importantly, unless people validate what's going on with the communication, it becomes noise. So in the Caesar syndrome, typical Caesar syndrome, you'll have someone stand up and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, but not actually stop, validate, check, what's your opinion? Do you agree with that? If not, please tell me why. There's a difference in talking, lecturing, as opposed to communicating. Big difference. How would you differentiate that difference? One word, engagement. Unless you're engaging with people, the communication is only half the equation. And the equation has to balance on both sides. That's a fundamental law of mathematics. So in terms of how this all works, unless there is engagement and there is a, an agreement in principle that the communication is at least credible, everybody's wasting their time. Melchior, what do you think of what David just said? Yeah, I feel like it's really important to engage with the listeners because if you can't inspire the people you work with and to inspire them, you have to, you have to get them to be engaged when you tell them to do things and when you're explaining things that you have to do. And if they're not engaged and it's very, I think it's very detrimental to the whole business and to the whole community because you ha I think you have to be interdependent when you're working in a business in the case that you that you should be able to work on your own but you should always look for people t for support and for advice and I feel like if you're not engaged then that whole sense of being interdependent is just not there in a the business anymore Now I want to ask you a question that is more suited to you. As we know, you are the former CEO of Toyota in Papua New Guinea. How, how much effort did it take to be a CEO of such a large corporation like Toyota? 
Well, it takes a lot of effort, to be honest, because, and this is just my opinion, and I think some people would share this as well, I think to be the CEO, you're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You simply cannot just walk away from the job because you've got too many people relying on you. In Papua New Guinea, and I did this calculation, based on the average size of the families of the people that work with me, directly there was 10,000 people that were counting on an income from the business to provide a livelihood for their families. And when you sit back and think about that, it doesn't mean we had 10,000 employees, but we had 10,000 family members that were linked to the employees and that was a critical responsibility. So in terms of, of what we do and how we communicate these things, I think it's pretty quite important to understand that the role of the CEO, you, you don't have any time to rest. Doesn't mean you don't sleep, but you're constantly on call. If something happens, you have to react to it. You've got to manage it. Now, a good example once, I do remember this, some of the staff that I had worked with would still remember this if you went to Papua New Guinea today. There was an issue. There was a lot of a shipment of vehicles came in to the docks and they came in and we only had a very short period of time to ship 600 vehicles from the, from the loading dock into our compound. Normally it would take three weeks to move these. We had to move it overnight. That was a government requirement. So I worked all night driving cars with the staff. Now I did this voluntarily and I did it without any hesitation because it had to be done. That is something that the CEOs in some cases would not do. But I did it and the amount of respect that that gave me with the staff is beyond measuring. You couldn't measure it because they saw that I was engaged and had a common view with them and had to work with them to do what we needed to do. The role of the CEO is a full-time job. It's taxing, it's stressful, it's incredibly rewarding. And when you think about the good people that you can potentially influence to change their lives forever by bringing them into the organisation, mentoring them, challenging them, and giving them opportunities that they never ever believed they would have, that is something that is truly satisfying and it really did give me a lot of satisfaction as I went through my career. In terms of the other role, you've got corporate responsibilities, you've got media responsibilities, you've got to talk to government leaders, sometimes international leaders. In my time in Papua New Guinea, I met many, many international ambassadors, frequently dealt with the Prime Minister and Cabinet Ministers. I was also President of the Automotive Dealers Association, as well as Chairman of the Avis Rent-A-Car Board, as well as being on our board. I was also part of a joint venture arrangement with two mining companies. So with all those board meetings going on, it's a full-time job. But the key point that I wanted to make about the CEO's role is, the CEO's role is responsible for every aspect of the business. You can have different departmental roles, different divisions roles, but the CEO is responsible for every one of those things. And he's also responsible for the shareholders. 
The shareholders are the people that invest money into the business. They hold the CEO responsible for their return on their investment, which is called a dividend. So you've got financial responsibilities, key performance indicators, media responsibilities, government compliance, safety and health of the workers, business opportunities, as well as recruiting the right people and making sure that their families are taken care of. Yes, it's a full-time job. It's a big job, but it's incredibly rewarding. You just mentioned, like you said, a ton of responsibilities. How? Like, how do you manage these responsibilities? Because time management is one of the topics that I guess we cover on this uh, this show, but it's just everything you just said. I was just gobsmacked. I'm like, wow, this man must be seriously talented, which you are. Like, how do you manage your time with all these responsibilities? Time management is a passion of mine, and I learned at a very early age that time you cannot get back. So once you waste time or lose time, it's gone. I think on average, on every working day in my time in Papua New Guinea, I would have between six and eight meetings a day. Now those meetings were choreographed and locked in specifically to start at a time and finish at a time. The responsibility to have those meetings on time was a key performance indicator that I put across the company as part of our culture. But the important part here is delegating and surrounding yourself with good people. Because you cannot do it all yourself. The key success to any CEO's role or any leadership role is surrounding yourself with the right people. The right people means good people. People that understand the core values. People that understand the mission and vision of the business. People that are positive, people that have got an attitude that is can do, not cannot do. People that take initiative, people that say, this is what we need to do and we go to do this. Once you've got those people surrounding you and you empower them to take responsibility for outcomes, the time management factor becomes less severe because you can have two meetings running in parallel empower someone else to conduct one meeting while you're doing another meeting actually multiplies the effectiveness of the day. The key building platform is to get the right people on track and develop them from day one so they can take some of the load off you whilst they're developing as key stakeholders in the business for the future. Just going back really quickly, and Milikshaw, I actually want to ask you this question as well. Being in a leadership position can create the feeling of invincibility, which goes back to the Caesar um, example you gave us, right? But it, it helps to check in with others to improve upon things you're really not aware of. Like, like you mentioned, you as a CEO, you were moving cars all night with your staff. I mean, with a modern CEO, that's not something you would expect. Because you would expect him to be living at living in a high apartment, penthouse, whatever it's called, living the dream, whatnot, earning all this money, but you were out there with your colleagues, with your workers. What qualities would you say are lacking among leaders today? I think some leaders, and it's not their fault, some leaders don't understand the full business, therefore they don't want to be in part of the business that they don't understand, therefore they avoid it. 
In terms of what they need to do is to understand the full business and not be afraid to ask questions. They need to immerse themselves into the business and engage with people. And one of the things that I learned very early in my career was to ask people, what can I do to help you do a better job? Now that question used to bring some amazing responses. I found that most people were not used to being asked that question. What can I do to make you do a better job? And what you feel then is that people feel that they're engaged, they're important, that their opinion, now most importantly, when you ask the question, within reason, you need to deliver on the answer that you give them. Regardless of your industry, the next question can reveal actionable strategies that will motivate employees or fellow team members to work toward the same vision. It takes more than astute, leaders to, astute leadership to do this. It involves providing a source of motivation to keep going regardless of the exhausting task ahead. What are the most important attributes of successful leaders today? I think recognising achievements and milestones, celebrating successes, and being open and honest about when things don't go as planned. Because even in the most dismal failures that go on in business every day, there's always some positive in there somewhere. Sometimes it's hard to find. But most importantly, staff are looking for people to be realistic. People to understand what's got to be said and actually do what they need to do. One of the things that I found was to spend time with people, not only in a work sense, but sometimes when you walk around the business, and I used to do this every day. There wasn't one department in the business I didn't go to every day. You'd walk in and you'd remember things about people. If someone had just got married or someone had just had a child, I used to make sure that I knew about that. And I'd walk up and say, congratulations on your marriage. Child number four. Well done. And you don't need to have a long conversation about it, but it makes people feel valued. That's the key to it. And it can be so simple. And I remember a very interesting example. There was a cleaner. He was an, a guy from the Western province in Papua New Guinea. And I used to walk past him. His name was Sandy. And I'd see him on my walk-arounds in the mornings. I'd say, good morning, Sandy, how are you? He'd look at me. I'm okay, is what he'd say. I'm okay. I kept saying good morning to him every time I saw him. And one of the other staff came to me and said, Sandy is not going to speak to you because you're the boss. But he feels so proud that you say good morning to him because he's been here for 40 years and no other boss has ever said good morning to him in 40 years. Now that was a real eye-opener for me because it's simple. My nature, I like to engage with people. But Sandy became one of my personal advocates because he promoted and supported me just by talking about the fact that I said good morning to him. And that simple example is what is lacking in a lot of business communication today. It's involving the people that come to work and work with you. With you, not for you. 
That's another key word. People get tied up with this working for. Yes, you might be the boss as the CEO, but you're working with, W-I-T-H, with people every day. And to get the best out of people, they need to feel valued and they need to feel connected. That, that is really the power of effective leadership. The, your, your ability to bring together a group of people, even though like it's an entire corporation, you brought together all your workers and you made them feel like they were valued. And, in, and true leaders and, in, and important leadership is that ability to connect people. Like you said, a simple thing as saying good morning while walking past the janitor can be so powerful. It makes, makes them feel like they're a part of the community they're working at. And I, I really respect that. And that's like something that is really important. But you also, beside, aside from being a CEO, you also held a directorial position. More precisely, you were the director of sales, marketing, service, parts and public affairs for General Motors for five years, is that right? Correct, yes. Yes, so how is that different to being a CEO? Like how is it, um, from a leadership perspective, how would that be different? Well, in the term leadership, it's leadership irrespective of whether it's a CEO or a director's position. It's still leadership. It's just leadership with different key performance indicators. It was different in many ways because the sales service parts, public affairs and marketing was a functional part of the business. The functional part of the business was specific in those areas of the business. Where the CEO's role is overall every aspect of the business. So in Indonesia, I had a CEO that was an American gentleman that I worked with as a director. As a CEO, my direct supervisor was the group managing director of the whole Asia Pacific region. Everybody's got a boss, let's be clear on that. CEOs have always got bosses. Yeah, the, the board and the um, shareholders. Correct. So everybody's accountable for what they do. So in the director's role in Indonesia, I was responsible for all the functional areas that related to the sale and servicing of motor cars and the brand image in the marketplace, which meant managing the media, which meant managing advertising, which meant managing the distribution of vehicles, the sale of vehicles, and also the service and parts to keep them on the road. Very complex role. But it was a very rewarding role too because if, they, if you look at the automotive business and in fact every other business that actively sells anything, nothing happens till you sell a motor car. If you look at the fruit shop, local fruit shop, nothing happens till they sell their fruit. Because the fruit market, they buy fruit, so that's an expense to the business. They don't make any money till they sell that fruit. It's the same in the automotive business. So it's a different role, the director's role versus the CEO's role, still has accountabilities. One is a functional role, which is the director's position. The other one is strategic, visionary, and corporate leadership, but it's still leadership. 
Now, uh, David, as a leader who was among one of the top people at the time, you obviously met with people who were obviously in really high positions. And like you said, for example, like the board and the current shareholders. And um, how do they portray leadership qualities? Well, it's interesting because if you look at the theory of leadership, there's autocratic leaders, there's democratic leaders, and there's military leaders. So to answer that question specifically, it depends on the circumstance. And I'll explain why I say that. In the military, the military hierarchy is one of orders and no questions. The soldiers are told to go forward and fight. They can't sit down and say, let's have a meeting about this. We'll have a conversation about it. No, it is orders and following the orders. That is classic autocratic. I give the orders. The soldiers must follow. In terms of demographic, the democracy of, of, of countries, the democratic type of leadership is one where there's a consultative process. It's more even keeled. It's more inclusive. My style of management has always been democratic because I want people to ask me questions. I want people to believe in what not I but we collectively are doing. There's a difference between I and we. In terms of the pluses and minuses of democratic versus autocratic, there's a place for both. As the CEO, there were times where I had to act in an autocratic manner to make a decision because it was required. But I would go back and validate that in a democratic sense to make sure that people understood why I did what I did and if they thought that I had a, there was a better solution, I wanted to know about it in case it happened again. There's a little thing called ego. Ego. Strange thing. One of the downsides of effective leadership is that people let their egos get out of control. And they feel it's not appropriate to actually ask somebody in the company, do you think we did the right thing? Or do you think I did the right thing? Their ego prevents them from doing that. And that's effective leadership. Yeah. But I feel it's critical to be able to ask, to have the communication with people because they believe then that their opinions are valued and they are being considered. So to answer the question, military, separate discussion. Autocratic and democratic style of leadership, those are equally important but in the correct measure, and the underlying period there is, do not let anybody's ego get out of control. At, one, at what point does autocratic leadership become too much? I think when people's opinions are not sought and it becomes a tell session as opposed to a strategy or a problem solving session. And I'm um, going back to, the, to ego. Now it's natural for everyone to have that sense of pride in themselves. But it's important, as you said, to, to not let that get out of control. And as a leader, how would you say that you kept your ego under control? <laughs> That's a good question. It's very simple. It's called the voice of reason. And the voice of reason, I would check with people and they would not even know that I was checking with them. I would have people that I would go to in certain departments and I'd say, tell me about that. Did that message 
was that message understood? Or do people believe that the decision we took on that was the right decision? Now, these people will tell me, because they trusted me. They'd say, no, they didn't like that decision. Or yes, they thought it was a good decision. Now, in the cases where they said they didn't like that decision, I didn't become upset, egotistical or disillusioned by that. I thought, why are they not happy with that? So then I'd explore the reasons why, and I would counteract those decisions or opinions with positives to explain what happened and why. And if I made a mistake, I would admit to it. Admitting to mistakes is actually something we talked about, I think, a couple of episodes back. I can't remember. But as a leader, it's extremely, extremely important that you recognize your mistakes and you rebuild from them. As leaders, we are expected to understand and have like a straight vision where we know what we want to do. How would you align your company with your vision and mission? Well, I think that the key thing there is the key performance indicators that every company or business has, be that financial, be it strategic, be it growth, whatever the key performance indicators are, that becomes the benchmark or base foundation for the vision. Step one is to define those objectives. Step two is to say, what is the gap analysis? The gap analysis meaning, where are we today versus where we need to be in order to deliver those business outcomes? If the gap's big, that's not an issue. It's developing the strategy then to meet that gap within the time frame that's allocated for the task. So to align the vision, it's very simple. The baseline is what the outputs or the vision or the key performance indicators of the business might be. Then it's all about engaging with people to, up them, up them, to ha actually have them understand what is required to meet the gap. Many, many times, now the current election campaign that's going on in this country is a classic example. People stand up and say, uh, unemployment's going to be at 4%. Then the journalists say, uh, please tell us how that's going to happen. You see some of the political leaders completely lost because they're not thinking this through. It's more important to understand the sequence and the transition from the baseline, which in business is the key performance indicators, to the gap analysis is where, where we are today versus where we need to be, and then, more importantly, to sell the benefits of what the achievement of the objectives will mean to the business and to the customers and to the employees. It's what's in it for them. When you've defined what that strategy is, then you consistently need to communicate that, that strategy and recognise people's achievements and celebrate successes. But you have to remain consistent on where you are going and why. On the topic of politics, who do you think is the best l political leader right now? <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are quite a lot, just not in Australia, it could be in other countries and whatnot, but who do you think would be the best political leader right now? Well, this may be somewhat controversial. 
I think one of the best leaders in the world at the present time is Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. Now, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because she, as a leader, is showing innovation. She's showing compassion. She's showing the willingness to listen, and she's showing the willingness to take risks. In more recent times, I thought I would have answered that as Angela Merkel in Germany, the, the, the Chancellor. The new Chancellor, yes. I think she did so much for Europe in developing stability and bringing peace and unifying Germany that she is an unsung hero in modern times. The United States President, former Barack Obama, also, I think history will reveal, was one of the true, truly great presidents of the United States. In terms of Australia, I think more recent times we've seen a toing and froing of political leaders. In my time in this country, I think John Howard was one of the better. Funnily, funnily enough, I know John Howard, and the only reason I do is because we share the same birthday. Well, <laughs> it's quite unfortunate, but I wish I could say he's my favourite leader, but I guess he's done some things I don't really support. So oh, that's, that's always the case with political yeah. leaders. But I think in terms of, to answer the question specifically, I look at how the country moved, if you're talking specifically Australia, I look at what happened in the country when they were Prime Minister. I look at what are some of the good things that happened. Some of the cultural changes and social changes under the Labor Party in this country will benefit us for the rest of our lives. Like Medicare. Truly outstanding. So, it's a difficult one to answer specifically because it depends on the country, the circumstances and the time frame that you're talking about. But I think good leaders are the ones that are innovators, they listen to the people, they're prepared to take risks, and they're prepared to undertake social change. On the topic of leadership and, um, uh, and politics, who do you think is the worst leader politically? Well, this is the David Purcell statement, and I'll stand by it. Hands down, Donald Trump. <laughs> A lot of people don't like him. Absolutely set the basis of international relationships and the image of the United States back probably 40 years. It's not even controversial anymore. It's just, no. it's just known. And that's just my opinion. Yeah. As an individual, I'm entitled to have that opinion. But nobody comes close to Donald Trump for the disruption that he caused across the world. Why? Can you give us some examples? Well... There's many. Why would you withdraw funding from the World Health Organization in the middle of a global pandemic? What possible reason would you have to do that? What possible reason would you have to incite a riot to send people into the Congress and cause the irreparable damage to the image of the United States democracy by doing what he did? I could go on. That's true. That's very true. And um, along with engaging with your co-workers it's also important to have that mutual trust in between the ceo and the co-worker as the as the former ceo of toyota how would you say that you were like what's your view on the trust between the ceo and the co-worker well if, if there's no trust 
There's no engagement. I can distinctly remember starting my role up there in Papua New Guinea with all these staff members. And I thought, how do I actually connect with them before I do anything else? And I had a roadshow. I went to every business opportunity that was there, every business we had. And I spent time with these people, talking to them, listening to them, asking them questions. What could we do differently? What do we need to do more of? What do we need to do less of? Then I committed to each one of them. I said, I'll be back within a month with some answers on these things. And I went back within a month. And clearly I didn't fix everything in a month. But the ones that we did fix, I fixed. And then I said, in six months' time, we'll be back again to talk about the ones that we're still working on. Now, the credibility of going back the first time was something they'd not seen before. But the credibility of going back again and again till we got these things right, and I must say it took two years, but to get the list of things that they wanted fixed, fixed, that, to me had an enormous impact on the staff in their ability and willingness to work for a common goal because they believed that someone was listening. The most respected leaders, you know, to say ahead in the industry, they continue to upgrade their skills, make new connections, improve their relationships and take advantage, advantages, I should say, of worthy opportunities. Some leaders retain these skills by reading books, or others teach staff and find better ways of solving old problems. How do you continue to grow as a leader? I mentioned several times in our conversations today about innovation. I think people have got to stay modern. They've got to stay connected in the very best way they can. And that sounds a bit like a cliche, but let me explain. In the industry that I spent 47 years in, which is the automotive industry, things are changing every day. Right now, people are talking about electric vehicles. Everybody's talking about electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, I'm sure, will come into this country as they will come into every part of the world. So specifically to answer your question, in my industry that I enjoyed so long, to stay connected I'm reading and studying as much as I can about electric vehicles. Why? Because people come to me and say, David, what do you think about these electric vehicles? Now, what am I supposed to say? Oh, I'm retired, I don't care. I do care. Yes, I am retired, but it doesn't mean I'm asleep. So I connect with people. I talk to people that have got stakes in this business. I talk to people that are involved in the manufacturing of vehicles these days and say, are you shifting to electric vehicles? And the answer is, they are cautiously, because there's many aspects to changing from petrol-driven vehicles and diesel-driven vehicles to electric vehicles. So I, I stay connected with more than one source. Anybody that doesn't read, that's stating the obvious, you must read. But podcasts, seminars, journals, online articles, international discussions, commodity prices, the influence of what, and a lot of people don't understand this. It's fine to say we must have electric vehicles that have got these beautiful batteries in it. I think one step further, I think, where are the minerals coming to build these batteries? 
are the minerals in those batteries biodegradable? Do they disintegrate or do they, they become even more of a concern in landfill in the next 100 years? I think they've figured out how to reuse batteries. I mean, if you take a look at our phones, like for example, Apple, Samsung, Huawei, whatever it is, like more than half the parts are recycled materials. So like they've introduced these initiatives where like you literally trade in your iPhone for a new one. So you basically sure. are giving Apple back their phone. So they just take, strip apart, strip apart your phone for parts and then it's reuse it, recalibrate it. Well, I think to that point, and it's a valid point, the governments across the world are not legislating to ensure that people are actually returning their phones. Now I'm as guilty as anybody. I looked in my office drawer this morning. There's five phones sitting in my drawers that have actually gone well and truly past the years by date because they're no longer supported. My point is, no one has said, Mr Purcell, we're not going to give you a new phone until you surrender your old one. So it's a voluntary issue and it's, it's, it's a concern, I think, to answer the question specifically, how do you stay current? These are the issues that people need to be challenging and thinking about talking to government people about and saying you should be legislating to make sure that when people buy a new phone they must surrender their old one why do i say that think about when you change a registration plate on your motor car you cannot get a new registration plate till you hand in the old one why because it's a security issue i use this as a bizarre example because i think that if you stay current with things that impact our lives as a human race that's the way you stay current and you stay connected in my industry there is so many different things and different parts to to the argument if you look at what do you do with old tires what do you do with plastic components what do you do with engine oil that is taken out of vehicles that's just a few and I talk to people about this because I'm passionately interested in it not enough people, unfortunately, are challenging those ideas. I just want to switch gears for a second right now. Governments around the world have said they want to go to 100% renewable by 2050. I know this is going a bit off what the topic of this conversation is, but I want to hear your thoughts. As someone who's seen the world change over many years, do you think 2050 is soon enough? Or do you think that is, I guess, okay for us to go? Look, I think it's reasonable, and when I say reasonable, it's, it depends on a lot of different things. I think renewables are, are critical for how we move forward, particularly in this country. Because we've got these vast open spaces of basically useless land. Yeah, we could be planting solar panels and whatnot. We should, we should have solar panels and wind farms right across the Simpson Desert. And that, again, is a David Purcell suggestion, so please, if someone disagrees with that, that's okay. But I just think that there is so much sunlight and wind out there, and there's nothing out there. Why is this country not using that? And that's a question to the political leaders. Trust me, I've asked them. They give me a lot of discussion, but no substance. So I think the target of 2050 is quite reasonable. My concern is that 2050 may be pushed out because governments have to actually pay the bills. And one of the things that people forget about is that while the fossil fuels have downsides, and they certainly do, the excise on, on fuels 
just look at the recent fuel price increases, is a tremendous revenue spinner for any government in any country. So it has to be a compromise and a transition that is phased in and phased out. But it's, it is something that our government leaders, both now and in the future, must embrace. I was actually talking to someone um, about this. People were saying, countries like Australia, we can export, and I, I want to emphasize this, we can export energy. Because if we plant, like you said, um, solar panels and wind farms across the Simpson Desert and like literally the middle of Australia, we will have so much so that we can power almost half of Europe. We can just export it and it can be a source of revenue and income for the government. We can power half of Europe with the amount of energy we have. And then I was listening to his podcast the other day and it was actually Elon Musk who was saying this. If you take a corner of a state in America, I think, do you know what this one was? Yeah, it was, it was Utah, corner of Utah. A corner of Utah. If you take a corner of Utah, you could power the entire United States of America. Hmm. That is how powerful our technology and renewable energy has become over these. We could take a corner of a portion of land that we own and power an entire country. And if we take a little bit more, we can power other countries and make revenue and profits out of this. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, I agree with that. And you've heard me say several times in this conversation today about how much I respect innovation. Elon Musk. Innovation, innovation, innovation. Challenging existing thinking. That's what he's done. That's what he will continue to do. But you see, in terms of Australia being able to export energy, why not, is my question. Why not have a plan to have that as part of what we do in the next 50 to 100 years? Now, I come from a six-year stint as CEO in Papua New Guinea. And there's a little island called Lahir Island, which has got a gold mine on it. It's part of Newcrest Mining. They have a a very simple, simple business model. On the island, it is a constant build-up of steam underneath the, the ground near the gold mine. The Papua New Guineans, in conjunction with scientists have developed their own power station driven by steam wow in lahir island so you go there and it's it's a version of a hydroelectric scheme which steam drives their generators and turbines i'm assuming yes so it's basically um hydro basically it's the way hydro um plants and hydroelectricity works is basically the movement of the water drives the turbines and that moving of the turbines create the energy so it's basically the same thing but just with steam well i can remember driving into this gold mine and it was just a scene that would never leave my brain as you're driving into the road there is hissing and geezers and steam coming out of the road beside you higher than the vehicle. And this is a natural phenomenon that's part of that, that part of the world. Must be astonishing to look at. It's just fascinating because what, and I salute the Papua New Guineans for doing this, they've said, well, we've got steam anyway, how do we use it? Because the steam's there. They haven't had to do anything other than to find a way to utilise what God has given them, which is steam. Absolutely amazing. 
And these, these, these sort of stories, you know, I could go on for hours about it, and it's, it's not the intention. But the point I'm making is Australia has the ability and the, the land, the sunshine, the wind to do so much more with energy than it is currently doing. I just want to go back to leadership now. As a leader, we must take risks in order to develop a and build, obviously, a better world regardless of the challenges that need to be faced. What is the most important risk you took as a leader and why? <laughs> it was a risk. It was in Papua New Guinea. Bearing in mind that everybody has a boss. The business in Papua New Guinea was owned by Toyota Motor, Motor Corporation in Japan. I saw that there was a need to streamline the distribution of motor vehicles and parts and accessories across the country. There were 16 different businesses in, the, in Papua New Guinea at the time, meaning Toyota businesses. And when I got there, I found that each business was doing the same thing, replicating the same functions over and over again, which just became a cost center. And the, 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 the functions I'm talking about is the receiving of vehicles, the pre-delivering of vehicles and fitting accessories, and then shipping them around the country to the customers, or as the case might be. Just a quick question before you go on. What year was this? This would have been 2006, huh. seven. So I said, look, what we can do here is we can centralise the national distribution of vehicles, parts and accessories, and we'll pre-deliver the vehicles before they even leave the distribution centre so they go straight to the customer. Now, that's easy said. It's about building a vision. So underpinning that, I set about finding a location. And we purchased a 10-acre sawmill that was used to producing cut timber and logs. And we turned that into a national distribution warehouse and vehicle preparation centre. The total investment was in excess of 20 million. What it did was it took all the vehicles from Japan, where they came from, straight into one port, as opposed to different ports, straight into one port, which was in the city of Lai, second biggest city in Papua New Guinea. The vehicle turnaround was significantly faster, which was done in a production line setup, and it removed 16 cost centers, which were the pre-delivery functions in all the businesses. And most importantly, it became a very easy sell to the board of directors in Japan because it reduced the expense and it shortened the order to customer delivery timeframe. So people got their, their dealers, sorry, the vehicles were delivered to the customers in a much quicker timeframe than it had been in the past. It was a win-win for everybody. That was a risk, an expensive risk, but it paid off handsomely. Would you say that taking risks like these is um, important or would you say that it's too risky because you don't know whether it will end up good or bad? For example, when you were taking that risk, did you think of if it was worth it and if it didn't work, then what would happen after that? Look, it's a good question because I think back to that project, there were many, many obstacles to overcome. 
But as you've heard me say in the start of our conversation today, you have to believe in yourself. You've got to believe in the vision and the core values of the business and believe the people in the people that work with you. You don't make a decision to purchase a large sawmill without getting opinions from people that really know what's going on, which are the people that work with you. People that have been working for the Toyota business in Papua New Guinea for the last 35, 40 years, they have opinions on this. When you sit down and talk to them and say, if we could invest in a central distribution centre and do this and do that, do you think that would work? And that goes back to effective communicating well, with your co-workers. It's, it's involvement. It's engagement. And once you've got the opinions of this, then when you have an obstacle you've got to overcome, the obstacle becomes a functional problem-solving exercise as opposed to a resistance, which is intellectual. Big difference. If you've got to build another wall, you build another wall. But if you've got to convince people intellectually that the wall's required, that's a separate discussion. So things certainly went wrong in that project. You can't do a project of that size without something going wrong. But people believed in it. People came to work every day saying, what do we need to do today to get one step closer to building this distribution centre? What do we need? What do we need in terms of training, support, IT support, hands-on resources, casual labour? What do we need? The can-do attitude I spoke about before a can-do attitude, we are going to deliver this distribution centre on time. The how-to is today's challenge, but we are going to do this. This brings me into the final segment for today's episode, which is delegation. So obviously, in order to build that distribution centre, you need to delegate certain tasks to certain people. As a leader, how important is it to not obviously with having a vision how important is it to delegate tasks well you can't do everything yourself there's another word i like to use when you talk about delegating it's delegating and empowering delegating is giving something somebody a responsibility to do something that's not empowering that's just saying i want you to do that but empowering is to say we need, we, keyword, we need to have this done by this period of time. From my standpoint, this is what I think we need to do. Do you see it the same way? Can you do that with me and for me so we deliver an outcome that's going to work for us? How do you delegate tasks? Like obviously, you empower people, right? As you just said, empowering is extremely important. Empowering is kind of like inspiring in, in many ways. So how do you delegate slash empower people? Well, I make sure that firstly, the person understands the task. Secondly, that the person has got the resources and the ability and the knowledge to do the task. I seek their agreement on the fact that they know what's got to be done and why. And I also make sure they understand the reasons and the benefits why these things need to be done. More importantly, what is going to go wrong if we don't get it done? Once you understand that, it starts to make sense. Most importantly, there's, there's a, 
if you study business management, there's a, a different function. One is, delegation is one thing, and the other converse to that is dumping. Now, dumping just means I walk past someone's desk and say, look, I need that report by five o'clock, and keep walking. That's dumping. That's not delegating. That's not empowering. That is just giving people jobs. That's not the role of a leader. The leader has to engage with people and make sure that these things are understood. And if you practice the art of role reversal, to effectively delegate to get something done, put yourself in the position that's, that's been the person that's being delegated the task and say, now, what would I like to see to happen to me? What would I like someone to explain to me? This is what's important. This is how we need to do it. Can you do that? Is there any support you need? Is the time frame okay? Can you work with that? And give them the reasons why. Once you understood that, it's a different perspective altogether than just saying fix that by five o'clock. So I delegate probably differently than most. I make sure that people understand they've got ownership, responsibility, the information and the knowledge to do the job and do it well. Malikshay, you are, I think, the deputy director of your committee at SRC, right? Yeah, that's correct. How do you work on delegation and stuff like that? So I feel like when you're when you're delegating in a task, and this is going to sound very similar to what David said because I'm on the same page as him, where in the fact that if you're delegating a task to someone, you don't just tell them what to do and then just like not say anything else because like David said, that's not engaging. And first of all, you have to see if the person has any questions about that, if they understand properly or not. And that's important because if you just tell them what to do and you might have been unclear about it and they don't understand what to do, you might find out next morning that they didn't do that task and why it's because they didn't understand how to do it. And so it's really important to properly communicate with the people you work with. Clarity. Yep. Honestly, if I'm going to be honest, I am. I prefer tasks to be really just split in half. So, like, I'd rather not just, like, give you, okay, you need to create this poster by this particular day. What I like to do is say, you need to create a title by Monday, try to have a background by Tuesday, consult with me and the rest of the group by Wednesday, and see what ideas we can create as a group and finalize everything by Friday. It's just me or is that no, more yeah, effective? I think, yeah, uh, I'm on the same page with you. I think that's, I think it's really important to not give the orders just like as a chunk, like just give everything at once because the person can be overwhelmed and it's less likely that they're going to do the work. But instead what you can do is you can give them a set of instructions and tell them step by step what to do. And it's just a whole lot easier to comprehend and to work with. David, now I just want to go back to you quite quickly. I want to talk about the arts of a good conversa- conversationalist, as hard as it is to say. Um, <laughs> we at the SRC had um, an entire day to talk about public speaking, conversations, stuff like this. So I want us to recall a little bit about what we learned. So, David, what is a good conversationalist? Well, there's some similarities between leadership and, and being able to, to hold a conversation. Firstly, you've got to be able to listen. 
people forget the, the listening aspect of having a conversation. Once you've learned the importance of listening, then you understand the importance of getting onto common ground or engaging with people so the conversation has some length and life. The ability to ask open-ended questions and to talk about people's interests from their perspective is the key ingredient to having a conversation with someone, firstly, that you've only just met. Things change a bit in conversation as you get to know people very well because you reflect back on memories and different times. But for someone you've just met, I've always found it's very important to get people to talk about themselves, find out what their interests are, talk about their interests, have them talk about themselves because that's, that is generally a level of comfort that they have. Once they start to talk about themselves, then it gives you an insight as the, as the person asking the question. It gives you an insight about the person. But open-ended questions. Tell me more. Great, a great statement. Tell me more. If someone talks, tell me more. Or tell me why you think that. Is there some reason why you've said that? If you have closed questions, which is yes, no answers, the conversation becomes very jilted, stop-start, disorganised. But in conversation, I think we all should flow towards making sure that people are talking about themselves, of mutual interest, common ground, and you heard me say something about matching the communication with the audience before. It's critical. If you're sitting back talking to someone about something of interest to them and you're talking about a language that they don't know anything about and that friend of mine that I talked about before that's got three university degrees if I'm talking to him about marketing and he doesn't understand what marketing is all of a sudden he's disconnected but if I talk about law economics or engineering he's engaged so a conversation is all about making sure that you're connecting with the person you're talking with and having them talk about their interests. You mentioned when you first meet a person, you should start to learn what their interests are. How do you do that? But whilst also maintaining, I guess, the interests you just talked about, that continues to be interesting. Depends where you are and depends who you are. If I'm standing at a... At a motor vehicle dealership and someone's looking at the car that's simple i just talk about the car what do they look for in a car what do they like about the car what do they don't like about the car but if i'm looking at a house someone's standing looking at a house that's an easy conversation because you talk about what they look for and you don't do it in, in, in an intrusive way. You do it in a very conversational way, which people just understand that you're not prying. It's, it's just conversation. So you do it so you're not confronting people or you're not being intrusive in the conversation style. Conversation is not hard. Conversation is an art, yes. But it's all about making sure that the other person is not feeling pressured you're not involving in their private affairs or private business, that you're just talking about things that are very general. 
that leads to the next level of conversation which can become a little bit more specific or it can become a little bit more target driven it depends on the con conversation the circumstances and the surroundings that, that also creates trust mutual trust as well between the two correct it sets the parameters and i guess all this goes back to the beginning of this podcast so like the um like beginning of this episode specifically where we were talking about people hi hiding behind their phones talking about the interests on twitter or like following certain groups or people and i guess engaging with them in i guess a community or a platform do you think that that is a good thing or a bad thing so like for example let's just take twitter right you follow a certain hashtag topic and your um, pay Twitter page is just, I guess, full of topics that you enjoy, and I guess you could retweet and quote tweets and whatnot, and talk about these topics. Do you think this is a good thing, and these things can start important conversations that matter? Look, I think it has a place. A personal opinion, again, if I'm talking to someone about anything on social media, I generally make reference to it and say, look, I saw that on Twitter. What do you think about that? Now, one or two answers will come back. One, I didn't see it on Twitter, so I don't know. In which case, you'd say, well, it was there. So, assuming you did see it, what do you think? But if they have seen it, they will have an opinion on it. The value of the Twitter conversation is a very good example, and I thank you for bringing it up, because social media is here to stay. Now, personally speaking, I think it has a place I don't think it's as important as people like to believe it is. But I say it has a place. What I don't like is the abuse of social media that sometimes occurs that impacts people's lives, particularly young people. But in terms of discussing something that's being on Twitter or on social media as part of a conversation, that's perfectly appropriate. It's just an opinion and the opinion may be agreed to or disagreed with. That's fine. It is a democracy. People can put things on social media that you and I do not agree with, but they have a right to do it, as long as it doesn't cause offence, embarrassment, or hurt people's feelings. I feel like with social media, it's important, and it's. I think it's important because it provides some benefits to modern day society, but I think it can also be detrimental as well. I think it's important because, for example, now with the news, we can hear about what's going on on the other side of the world. And that's important to connect with people from all around the world. But I think with social media, it's also bad because if we spend too much time, then we're not focusing on other things as well. Yeah, that's true. true. And um, I love the fact that um, companies are introducing like phone companies computer companies are introducing software that limits your time on a specific app most especially stuff like netflix youtube and social media apps i mean i just i guess talking about uh, i have a friend of mine who is um quite addicted to social media and he told me that like, he just lays down, gets on social media, starts scrolling through. Before you know it, it's a couple of hours are gone. 
and it felt like it's a second. And this is quite evident with TikTok. Like the videos are like 30 seconds, but like you spend hours on it without realizing. And that's quite scary because those are, those could be hours where you were sitting next to someone or in front of someone talking about important topics and topical matters that are going to affect the world today and tomorrow. So yeah, I guess that's important. Well, it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the conversation about time management. See, I'm, I'm probably old-fashioned in my thinking here because the time that people spend, for example, your friend that spends a couple of hours watching TikTok and various other bits and pieces, not for me to judge. It's not my responsibility. But I would question, could those two hours that you can never get back in your life, repeat, that you can never get back in your life because they're gone, could those two hours have been used more productively by that person for either himself, his family, or someone outside of his family is the question that I'd put to that individual. It's not a criticism, it's a question. The question is, could that time be used more effectively? Because remember, you can never get those two hours back. They're gone. David, I just want to thank you so much for coming onto the show. It has been an absolute honor to have this conversation with you. We learned a lot from this episode, going from public speaking, corporate leadership, delegation, conversationalists. It, it was an absolute honor. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for your time.